it comes up quite frequently, which is lack of an action is, is an action. Deciding not to do something is just as much an action as deciding to do something. So I think you're culpable either way. Yo, I made a PowerPoint presentation for why I should be allowed to have a MySpace when I was like 15 and it got rejected. You know, not all of this was, uh, it was not a blank check for sure. We all lived in a one-bedroom apartment for about a year and a half. There was a living room, so there was like, it, Dan, the ultimate negotiator, negotiated the bedroom that was the size of his mattress, so he kind of had a door. And then Tony had a day bed, I had an air mattress, and Ken slept on the floor. So you live together, work together, all day, all night. Yep. And you didn't end up killing each other. That's pretty impressive. The trolley problem. What's the trolley problem? The trolley problem is you are some kind of train controller and you're at a junction where the track splits in two. Like usually it's like on one side you have one worker who's working on maintaining the tracks. On the other side there's like, you know, 10 other people who shouldn't be on the tracks but they're on the tracks. The train's barreling down the tracks towards the 10 people. The one working on the other side was supposed to be there doing maintenance. Um, and you have the control to flip the train over from one side to the other to save the 10 people but kill the one person. Do you do it? There's a more fun variation, which is you have the ability to, let's assume, you can, you can, you can stop the, the trolley or the car or the train by kicking one person off the bridge and stop it. And the person is standing in front of you. Uh, and by, by kicking that person off the bridge you can stop the train of running over five. Uh, it's the same same thing, but more dra dramatic. Oh, just for like whether or not you need to get your hands dirty. Yes, the but the, the, the conundrum is the same, right? Uh, as the person who decides the fate of five people versus one, which one are you going to go with? Is it, 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 do you think you, you will basically observe uh, because those five people are bound to die if you don't do anything? Or are you going to make the active... Um, decision to, to, to change that result. What's your answer, man? What's the case for not changing it? Like, <laughs> I, I am a low ownership individual that just lets bad things happen. So I guess we know your answer. You would flip it and you would uh, kill the one oh, person yeah. and save the five. I mean, net we're killing people either way. You're now at a question of how many. Right. I guess the, the, the argument, like the conundrum people might think they're in is you're, you're, your behavior resulted in that person died. If you don't do anything, that person doesn't die, right? I think is, uh, it comes up quite frequently, which is lack of an action is an action. Deciding not to do something is just as much an action as deciding to do something. Um, so I think you're culpable either way. Nice. That's well put. Um, I would agree with you there. I think my solution is 100% flip it over and kill the one person because, like, the conundrum, as I think C was saying before, is if you don't do anything, then you could claim that you have, you're innocent, right? You didn't have a hand in the death of one person. And the train was, quote-unquote, meant to run over the five people. Oh, right? yeah, exactly. And you that's why I'm and you saying... Do nothing. But 
at the end of the day, one person dies or five people die. 100%. That's exactly why I was saying non-action, inaction is an action. Yep. That's, That's a good take. I, I used to ponder upon this problem. So I have an unfair advantage, I guess, because I, I used to study philosophy and this, I wrote a, like a semi-essay on this. Um, so I thought about this a lot, but I think the, the question about morality is, so like whether you are moral, I think what comes down to it, in my opinion, is the fact that you thought about this makes you moral. So I'm definitely in the camp of uh, Emil Kant, which means like uh, the intention decides whether your action is moral or not, right? So if, if your intention is to save people, uh, either it's that one person or the five people. If you, if you actively thought about this and you made a choice in either direction, I think, I think your intention justifies already your, your morality. So no matter what choice you made in the end, if you spend the time to thinking about this, uh, to reasoning through this, I think you're already moral, is what I would, uh, would argue. Yeah. I want to go back to the fact that seed you know, needed to go deeper and be like, what is your level of fear of confrontation? Because he's like, you have to kick the one person off the train. Which is totally unrelated to like whether or not you're utilitarian. It's like, how well do you do with conflict? Which yeah, it's a variation, right? Like it's basically one level above. Uh, it's kind of um, emphasized the, the the difference between non-action and action, right? You're, you're taking actual action by kicking yep. the person off the bridge. Yeah. yeah. All right. Enough with this uh, metaphysical discussion. We just asked this question to get your juice flowing. Let's jump into the actual interview. Parker, thanks for joining us, and welcome to Superposition. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Parker, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us um, you know, who you are, what you do, and why you're here. Parker Self, nice to meet you guys. Um, I run engineering for a startup named Dandy. We are in dental, and you probably haven't heard of us. It's not just any startups. More than, it's already more than 500 people, so pretty impressive. Yeah, so... Um, and I am here because I repeatedly failed to recruit Seed to work for Dandy. And um, he suckered me into going on this podcast to talk to him <laughs> more because I genuinely enjoy his company. And we uh, got to become friends over the recruiting process. Seed, you need to go interview at more jobs and get us more interesting <laughs> guests. <laughs> this, is, this is your guys' guest acquisition strategy. Exactly. Just interview. Yeah. Yeah. But I always find uh, when I talk with Parker, I feel like... In a lot of ways, we, we think pretty similarly, uh, and, and we hit it off pretty quickly. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I would be curious to hear about, you know, a little bit of your backstory, right? Like you are uh, at a tender age of less than 30, uh, running engineering at a fast-growing startup. I mean, you know, as, as just like uh, a random person out there, I might say like, wow, that's, that's pretty unusual. So like, you know, uh, one would be curious about your backstory. Like, how'd you get here? Were you you know, always really uh, competitive and successful in the things you do. And what, what's your story? Yeah, let's start, for, start early. Like, uh, you know, where, where do you grow up? Um, and uh, yeah, what's that like? So I grew up about 45 minutes north of Philadelphia. So kind of suburban Pennsylvania. But interestingly, like I grew up in a Southern family, which I think is a little different and then grew up kind of, you know, 14 hours away from closest relatives. My dad moved up here for work, uh, went to a small Christian school all up until like eighth grade. Nothing super notable there other than a developing dislike of authority. 
for our listeners, what is a Christian school? Can you explain that a little bit? Like, do you is part of the curriculum is about Bible and shit? Yeah, you have like Bible class. It's like a Catholic school, but more niche. I don't know. Like Presbyterians send their kids there. They're much bigger in the South. There's not a lot of them in like the Northeast. But but it's boy. It's mixed gender, right? It's not. Just boys. Yeah. Oh, okay. From there, finally went to public school because of sports. I was always very into sports growing up. Played lacrosse super heavily from like fourth grade when I first started playing and realized I didn't need to be six eight to like play the sport at a high level. So I wound up transferring to public school, go through there in order to play lacrosse. And then in high school made pretty high level club lacrosse team, did that for a while from like fourth grade till my junior year of college, basically obsessed with lacrosse, doing everything from stringing sticks online and selling like lacrosse sticks online. Um, my mom used to joke that she was like a USPS fulfillment center because she would just <laughs> like, I would buy and sell gear so much and just, you know, making five bucks a deal or something. And, you know, if I was actually paying the shipping fees that my mother was picking up, it probably would have been net negative, but my my first investor. I was obsessed with lacrosse all the way through. Played uh, at a really high level in high school. Was on a club team called Duke's Lacrosse, which I will give um, a lot of credit to Like later thoughts around how you build teams and how you get the best people like on the bus and moving in the same direction. So you mentioned... Pretty young age, you you started your own business, selling, you know, seems like rackets and strings and shit. You know, that's not a common thing for for people. Seems from a young age, you you're into entrepreneurship. So where does that come from? Is that in the family or how did you like? What even brought you to to selling stuff online? Do you need some money or like what's going on? I was selling stuff since I was a little kid. I didn't like talking to people, but I liked like building things and trying to sell it. You know, everything from the lemonade stand when you're really young, and I just kept trying to do that. I would go to lacrosse camps where they, they'd, like, give you a stick for coming to the camp, but then you need to string the stick. This is very esoteric. Google lacrosse stick if you don't know what I'm talking about, but basically there's a mesh pocket in the thing. Um, they would give you the stick, and they would give you a stringing kit, and it wouldn't be strung, and then, like, I realized very quickly the first year I went to camp, people would pay me to string the sticks. And so I was doing that. And then I, by the second time I went to the camp, I came with a bunch of like custom strings and different colors and all this stuff and literally ran a business out of the camp dorm room. Like it was a sleepaway camp. And every hour I didn't need to be at a session playing lacrosse, I was just like stringing lacrosse sticks and selling it, <laughs> which was hilarious and now like i remember i made more money than the cost of the camp and my mom would joke that i needed to pay her for the camp (laughs) (laughs) what what do you find is the most uh um kind of motivating part of that experience is it the money in the end is it the the network you built is it the craft you you were able to develop what is the good part what is the juicy part you find in that experience i would pick craft of those options though it is hard to act like I have insight into my 12-year-old brain. Who knows what that dude was doing? Maybe it was money at that point. I definitely remember when I was, like, middle school young, I was always, like, I had a book. 
I do remember having a book that was like how to make a million dollars like when I was like 10 years old. So mm. there was there was definitely something there. I yeah. read the four hour work week at a very young age. How did you even uh, came across that book? Is, is that like some your parents gave it to you or, or is it just came like uh, came across randomly? I feel like I bought it at like a school book fair. Like maybe my mom gave me the money for the book, but I see. I read a ton as a kid. Like twenty four seven was reading a book. How much did you make? I don't know. I probably made like five hundred bucks over like a three day sleepaway camp or something. That's a lot of money for like a twelve year old. And it's backing. It's ten more well, than ten years ago. So that's top line. I, I that does not revenue. include my yeah. <laughs> that was revenue. That wasn't profit. Yeah, that's impressive. So, Parker's been an entrepreneur for a long time, before maybe you knew it. Definitely yeah. before I knew it, or knew why. <laughs> cool. So, what happens after high school? That entailed was the whole recruiting process, which was probably the biggest uh, like turning point in my life, was going through the recruiting process. Michigan opened a new program, so University of Michigan. And so, I started talking to the coach there. He was recently hired. At that point, I had a few other schools I was excited about and were decent, but like Michigan was obviously the top choice. He's just like, yeah, you're basically committed, but like wait until the end of the summer to uh, to when you can visit campus and talk to the head coach and officially commit. It was like the offensive coordinator there. Anyways, I go out for a visit, and then I go in and talk to the head coach. Frankly, I think I've like blacked out most of this conversation. Like, I don't remember exactly what he said. I barely remember what he looks like. I just know he told me he didn't have a spot for me. Oh, no. And they had all filled up their rosters. So anyways, I go home, and then I'm like, what are my options here? And I still had a... uh, All the military academies had still been interested, and I'd gone on visits, and I was really like, probably not going to go to a military academy. My dad's talking to me. He's like, you don't really have another option. I graduated high school had about a week off, and then got shipped off to boot camp. I think it was six weeks post-graduation. You can't talk to anybody. Your friends can send you a letter. You're going through boot camp. Like, it is not enlisted boot camp, so you don't even really get to do fun things like shoot a lot of guns or anything. Like, you really just do push-ups. I held a salute for an hour once. The whole team, the whole squad was not snapping to it fast enough, so I just sat there and I held a salute for an hour. So... Did you, did you make it through the whole way? Yeah, boot camp was not the worst. I think the the darkest part of the story is when, like, boot camp is terrible. Like, you can't go to the bathroom on your own. You wake up at 5 a.m. Every, every morning. You go to sleep. You get, like, four hours of sleep. You wake up. What you get is the upperclassmen are the people who run uh, basic training because it's part of their leadership training. They would wake us up every morning with, like, death metal on, like, the loudest speaker ever. Like they they have just uh, they have systematized and processized uh, hazing to a degree that you cannot imagine. It's a, it's really incredible. Like they just do everything to mess with you mm-hmm. um, because it's supposed to be part of like mental toughness training. At the time, I hated it. In hindsight, I'm kind of like, well, that's it's helpful in startups, right? Oh, you're gonna make me hold a push up position for an hour, like. You know, whatever a startup can throw at you is nowhere near I that see. level of like messing with your head. So, yeah, um, 
in that way, I really enjoyed it. That's why the workload right now is nothing for you, right? Different type of weight. I see. Um, it's like the struggle is when your investors don't trust you, your your employees don't like you, you're not sure, they tell you you can't do the job and you're not sure you can do it yourself. The struggle is coming home at the end of the day and not, I, I should just look it up and read it, but um, <laughs> it's a different type of weight. There's, there's different magnitudes to it. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a little bit of mental preparation for the journey at the academies. And so then I left and transferred out, uh, did some normal school stuff, blew out my ankle, stopped playing lacrosse, lived in Gibraltar for six months on a sailboat. And I decided to drop out of sports. And Did you eventually graduate from Penn State with a degree or...? Yeah, so I came back. I wound up not working for the Yacht Week. Basically, the long story short is I went there. Uh, needed You need to get a pretty, a decently professional license. It took me about two months and 1,500 miles of sailing to be able to get the license that licenses me to be a yacht charter captain in Croatia in the summer for this party cruise thing called the Yacht Week. This, is, this was my quarter-life crisis, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> after I quit. It was right after I quit lacrosse. Um, by the time I had gotten the license, I realized I was really tired of sailboats, so I just came <laughs> home. And then uh, transferred up to Penn State for my senior year, did about one semester of not playing sports, not living on a sailboat, and not really having something to work on, um, which I played a lot of Fallout, and so it was pretty self-evident that I needed to get something to do. Um, and then I started working for my first startup, uh, about January of the spring semester, of my senior year. Right. So before you graduated, before I graduated. Yeah. And I was basically by that point for that semester, I basically worked full time and I had transferred to Penn state because it was a better degree. And my dad wanted me to finish school. I didn't want to finish school after I stopped playing sports. Mm. Um, and it was, I mean, it was much cheaper than St. Joe's too, now that I didn't have any lacrosse scholarship or anything. So basically I picked economics because it was the easiest major to transfer into and the easiest major to finish um, in terms of having to attend class. It wasn't actually the workload. It wasn't actually the work. It was the fact that they only had two midterms and a final and all the homework assignments you could do remotely, which meant I didn't have to waste any time in class. How did you even get into coding? Because I know you're a pretty good programmer, according to my sources. So how, where did you even pick that up? So I was trying to teach myself in the background here, um, like in college. I'd been trying to teach myself in the background for a while. And I could write like tic-tac. I did learn Python the hard way, did all the Code Academy stuff. Like, you know, tried my best on the entryway thing. But why? Why'd you, why'd you start, you know, learning code? Yeah, to tell the longer story, like I was trying to start a company in, I tried to start like two companies in like my sophomore and junior year. Um, one was a rideshare thing before Uber got too big. It, it was based off Uber, but it was like college-based rideshare platform. And then you would try and do it. I actually hired employees for that. That's crazy. I'm just remembering that now. Like employees in that, like I convinced people on Twitter to sign up to be a driver and then never sent them an email about where to drive because I never really got anybody to ride. So, um, but it was like the idea was to do school-based rideshare platform. Dashmart, 
Shout out GoPuff. Tony worked at GoPuff. Tony's our, one of my co-founders. So. so I was trying to do it based on like people who go to the school can offer rides and get paid to give rides and like it's some sort of safe network. I wasn't really too good at the value statement there at that point. I was just trying to figure out the marketing. Um, I think marketing was my first real thing that I liked deeply on like building companies. But I was trying to teach myself how to code in the background because it was clear I couldn't like at that point, it was, I had never been blocked by not being able to code. Like, you can hack enough stuff together with spreadsheets and, like, manual operations. But I knew that if I wanted to get into, like, real investors and all these things I read out read about online on Y Combinator, like, I, I'd probably need it to know how to code. So I, I did all the tutorials and stuff, but I didn't really code until Momentary Inc., um, which is the company I joined in college in that spring semester of my senior year. I really started coding there when I saw we had contractors managing the WordPress plugin for uploading temporary tattoo images. So I'll give some context here. The first startup I joined was called Momentary Inc. They do custom temporary tattoos. Hmm. Upload a photo of your cat, tell us what size you want it in so that you can try it on before you get it as a real tattoo. The founder's mom worked with my mom. This was my first connection. and This felt like a real startup. And so I said, like, I'll join and do operations and support. And so, like, I just answered a ton of Zendesk tickets, did a bunch of other stuff. Um, and then eventually he asked me to manage the contractors doing the WordPress plugin because there were bugs. And then I got really frustrated with how long it took the contractors to turn stuff back around. And I was just like, how do I edit a WordPress site? So I started Googling and then I realized, oh, like, oh, I can just write some code. And that began the journey of actually the thing that I'd been missing when I'd been trying to teach myself how to code was the working system. Like I built a tic-tac-toe game in Python or I followed some tutorial, but like it didn't make business sense to me. So I was like, what the hell is the point of this stuff? But as soon as I got that, it was like, oh, this is the new lacrosse, right? everything wrapped in one because there's actually no barrier to me making progress here. Like in lacrosse, I would spend four hours a night in the backyard shooting because I could just do it by myself. As soon as I got a system that worked and I could see progress towards the thing. Nice. So the original impetus was building a business, but the obsessive side of me got hooked like no other and just like 10 hours a day. That's, that's very interesting. Um, so I, I'm also curious, you didn't really emphasize on this, but um, I feel like your parents played a pretty big role in, in your life and, and seems they're also pretty supportive of you. So I'm also curious, you know, as a Chinese person, um, a lot of times our parents play a, a kind of a more assertive role, I would say. You know, like this is the direction you should go. Um, I think my parents are pretty chill, but I would say a lot of parents, Chinese parents, won't let you to try out different shit. <laughs> like you, you cannot really just oh, uh, you want to play lacrosse, but you decided to quit the, the Air Force Academy, go to a different thing, go to sail for a year. That's just not going to happen, right? So I'm I'm curious what's the what's the um, the dynamic between you and the parents, and um, what what role did, did they play in your life so far? Obviously, my parents are very supportive. I've probably, for the sake of how much I love my parents, I've probably downplayed the amount of pushback and selling I probably had to do 
to <laughs> convince them. Yo, I made a PowerPoint presentation for why I should be allowed to have a MySpace when I was like 15 and it got rejected. <laughs> so, wow. um, you know, not all of this was, uh, it was not a blank check for sure. Um, and I am more introverted than not. So you just put me down a rabbit hole of thinking about like uh, recently I've had to learn how to sell and talk to people and convince them to join the team, mostly through recruiting, right? Um, recruiting is both a process of finding mutual goals and being as clear as you can be about where you're at, but it's also about like presenting a strong case for why this is a good option for somebody. I hadn't made the connection before of why I could do that at all. So the question about my parents is they were very supportive, but they were also very um, disciplined about mm. what I was allowed to do, what they supported me to do. I glazed over my dad's background, um, but my dad was an orphan growing up, uh, raised, grew up in the back of a Subaru and in trailers, and then... Um, Eventually, his parents abandoned him and his two sisters, and he raised them, um, I think from the age of 15 or 16, he raised his two younger sisters all the way through to where um, I had picked up the story earlier. He had gotten a full ride to Clemson, had then gotten a job at Merck, had then leveraged that job to um, get them to let him get an MBA from Wharton. That's how we ended up in the Northeast, actually. I still remember my dad called me lazy when I was like eight, and he just set something off. Um, so all the obsession, all the like doing things to the nth degree is a bit of, I'll say it's a very healthy relationship, but it's like a bit of that like make him proud, do. So that's where the drive is from. That man was driving the school bus to school with his sisters on it and the rest of the high school. Then he was getting off the school bus and going to high school. And now he's able to, you know, like, he, he donates to the orphanage that he grew up in with his sisters and stuff like that. So That's awesome. Um, my story is not that impressive compared to that. That, if you want to, like, really tie it up in an easy box of where all the fuel is from, is that. Like, yeah. And so all those things, my parents were amazing. Um, my mom is just insanely supportive. Like I mentioned, she had like her own family stuff that was interesting. Um, she is just the nicest woman in the world that will do anything for anybody. Her plus my dad wind up in this world where like you have this really hard driver who's going to make sure you're, if, if you're going to do something, you're going to do it well. And then my mom being like, you, ha you do have to support him and, like, build it up. It worked out really well. They did a good job, from what I can tell. Well, you made it to superposition. Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask is, what does success look like to you? And did that always include starting your own company? Did I always want to start my own company? Yes. Um, I still want to start my own company. Uh, the thing I believe strongly is that um, separate any belief system for anything. Um, ultimately, wow, I'm so competitive. If, if you were to rank value as a human being, it's the amount of value you create for other people. Um, one of the highest leverage ways to do that is to create something new in the world that doesn't exist that 
makes other people's lives better. Um, Amazon, Apple, all those things. I don't think there's a better vehicle than companies to maximize your positive impact on the world. Um, you can be a leader at one, you can start one, um, but I think if you think of the people who had the greatest positive impact on the world over the last few decades, last 50 years, I don't know, there's definitely some non-founders in there, but a lot of it is founders. Um, a lot of the positive change in the world comes from building something that is customer-obsessed. Shout out, Jeff. Um, it just so happens that when financial incentives align with like human incentives of raising the floor of everyone's experience, life works out well. Um, if you look at social media, that may not be the case as much, in my opinion. But, hey, you're going to DoorDash seat. <laughs> Generally, the quality of life for all of humanity improves off some of those things. So, Parker, we actually met Dandy co-founders when you were trying to enter White Combinator yourself, right? So I was in the process of building this thing, and I, classic me, which um, I'm interestingly enough learning this is a bit of a, a skill that I need to build in the other direction, is I'm very self-directed in learning. I really, like, I Google the hell out of everything, read all the books, I'm not nearly as good at going and asking somebody for help, which is a thing I'm learning later on in the career. But um, at that point, I start Googling. I've got the y, y Combinator application written. I have a prototype that is for this backend as a service thing that is more fully developed than any prototype probably should be. Um, I read everything, and it's all like they frown on solo co-founders. So I'm like, crap. I forgot this in the plan. Nobody told me this part. Um, I mean, they told me I just never really met anybody that I wanted to start a company with. Um, so before I submit the Y Combinator application, I have a last gasp of browsing angel lists for people in the Philadelphia area listed as founders. <laughs> this is a long shot. This is a yeah. major long shot. Um, and I run across Tony's profile first. And Tony was one of the first. Tony's the co-founder of Dandy. Um, he was CTO, one of the first, right? the CTO. uh, no titles. It's Dan and oh, Tony okay. are both co-founders. Um, he is not the technical co-founder though. Um, Tony was one of the first 20 employees at GoPuff, uh, Tony Alaco. Uh, I did a quick Google search and his Ted talk showed up. I was like, Oh, this guy's legit. He was at GoPuff for about two years. If you don't know GoPuff, I think they're worth about 5 billion now. Um, huge convenience grocery delivery. No one in New York knows them, interestingly. Hmm. Um, Not as good never, as DoorDash. Yeah, they never <laughs> penetrated New York. Yeah, you can have your DoorDash plug, don't we? But, uh, and then I look on Dan's profile, and he had done internships at Facebook, Google, Yelp. He had, like, Sequoia Ambassador. Tony had, like, Dorm Room Fund Ambassador. I was like, oh, these are the guys. This is legit. And then I saw they were hiring for a software engineer, and I was like, well, I guess they don't want to start a company with me. So I just sent in a resume uh, just to see what would happen. And at that point, I had been experimenting kind of with, like, building out a profile and a resume. I had never done an interview, but was, like, kind of thinking about it. Um, I had no idea if I could write code at that point. Like, I'd only ever worked by myself. Um, but I shot in a resume, and Dan called me within an hour 
and Dan is Dan's the technical co-founder, and um, he has an interesting story. He's actually started even earlier than Tony was on board. Um, worked on it in college for a few years, off and on. Um, but he calls me within an hour. This is on a Thursday night. We talk for like two hours about TypeScript and how to build things fast, but like scalably or something. I don't know what I was saying at that point. Who knows? Um, and then he's like, you got to interview. And so they interview me the next day. Um, I meet Dan and uh, Dan and Tony are my roommates now. Like, I love these guys to death. But my immediate thought was like, we had a really awkward handshake. And I was like, oh, this is what like nerdy Silicon Valley is like. Because I'd never met software engineers or like anything. Like, I had no idea what was going on. And he's like, hi, I'm Daniel. And I was like, yes, I know. You invited me here to interview. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go in and my first interview was an hour behavioral with Tony. Uh, Tony was less polished at that point too. We all were. Um, and so Tony tells me he loves me and that I, I can have his phone number and he'll help me out any way I can within like 10 minutes in the conversation. He's like, I love you, bro. Like you have that grind, like, let's go. <laughs> That's Tony. And then I go in, um, and like we bonded over a bunch of business books and whatever else. Um, and then I go in with Dan and like, it was like the SAT, but worse. He like handed me a computer and he's like, in front of you, you will find a set of problems. Your job is to solve them as quickly as possible. <laughs> and I was like, shit, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Um, anyways, I kind of wound up doing well on the interview. Um, and the thing I remember most is we come out of the room and Dan and Tony come together and there's like one other early employee there, Ken, who's my, our third room, our fourth roommate, I guess. Um, and they're talking about like going to dinner and they're talking like in front of me in a way that they're going to invite me. And they, then they kind of step away and you can see Dan and Tony kind of do this, like we're going to be adults about this. And they come back and Tony's like shakes my hand and he's like, you know, you'll hear from us. Um, this is like 9 PM on a Friday night. Right. Um, and so then I was ecstatic because I kind of thought I got the job, like went out with my buddy. I was like, I finally cracked into like real startups. Like I'm not going to have to start my own thing. Um, Cause I was like nervous about it at that point. I didn't have anybody around me who was like a good advisor or anything. So their professionalism lasted for all of, you know, 10 hours. Cause about 7am on a Saturday morning, Tony is calling me. Like I, I wake up to three missed calls and I look at my text. He's like, yo, homie, you want to go get breakfast? Like, me and Dan are going to get breakfast, like, here. Like, come meet us. And so meet him at breakfast. They give me an offer, like, in, entry-level software engineer. And I remember I said to him, I was like, look, I know I'm not a founder. I was going to found my own thing. I am going to be here 14 hours a day working just as hard as you do. Um and you ever let me know if that's a problem? I just hope I'm not treated like an entry-level engineer within a few years here. Um, and I signed at the table, ran home and grabbed my laptop, and came back to the office that day. And my contract at that point was a text message to Dan saying I would not screw up the Orthly code base. And Orthly was the name of the company at that point. Uh, this is before we pivoted into Dandy. Um, Dandy has existed for about two and a half years. I've been 
working with Dan and Tony and Ken for three and a half. So we spent about a year on this business, but that was my contract. I started writing code that same day. The plan has pretty much worked out. You know, for a lot of people, especially entitled Silicon Valley engineers, they would say, oh, this is a huge red flag. They don't respect your personal boundaries. Seems like no work-life balance in this company at all. Like they're, they're calling me 7 a.m. in the morning. A lot of people would, would uh, think that as a red flag. Um, so, like, what's your take on that? What, why would you think that's not important for you, um, but uh, rather excited about the fact that they are pretty pushy about things? Do you think work-life balance as a concept is... How, 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 do you, how do you rationalize that, that term even? Depends on what you want to do. Depends on what you want to do. Do you think as an entrepreneur, you need to sacrifice your life for, for work? Or, or do you think there's just no clear boundary at all? It's a mixture of no clear boundary you need to sacrifice and you do still need to make the space required to recharge and be able to think. I'll say that. Um, there are times you have to sprint. There are also times you have to know that, just like sports, like everything in sports, I think it's the best analogy that I have for startups. It's like you need to be ready to, you know, train and run and go as hard as possible. And then you also need to know how to recover and you need to know how to balance that. Um, if you Google how much CEOs sleep, though, um, you start to get an idea. You do train your body and your mind to work on a different schedule than a normal human being. Um, Michael Jordan also trained his body and his mind to work on a different level than other human beings. He probably slept more and rest, rested more because it was more important to the function he was doing. But, it, you know, um, you want to be really, really good at something. You kind of have to put everything right. into it either way. Right. Has always been my take um and I've, I've definitely swung too hard in one direction or the other too much space too much recovery too much work to where you can't even step back and make a good decision because your head's spinning all day long that is the game within the game um that you start to learn at like an air force academy and then get in division one sports and things like i i had a lot of advantages in having those experiences coming into this one um because there's a lot, like, you can't sit at 99% redlining yourself all the time. I'm sorry, I need to step back. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to make the important decisions. Um, I haven't really ever erred on the side of too little, but I'm, work I'm working on that. <laughs> yeah. And another quick question is, um, a lot of people won't have the courage to say, uh, I'm going to sign this contract. It's only entry-level job. I know for sure in two years, I will be you know, much more than this because I'm going to put in the work. I have the talent. So where, where did that courage come from? I don't think of it as courage. I think of it as kind of like a nothing-to-lose type attitude. We used to talk about that a lot. It's interesting as the company gets bigger. You obviously cannot be as reckless as that. But at, at, in the early days, it was just like, Everything to gain, nothing to lose, like just sell out. What's the worst thing going to be? I'm going to be in 30K in credit card debt working for another company that can't pay me. Like, right. you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to an Air Force Academy. Like and nothing could have been that bad. So 
you mentioned that there's sort of nothing to lose, right? And this is kind of a theme that I sort of hear from a lot of founders and early employees that, you know, they're in a place in life where they could take a risk and they were, you know, pretty much like living in a basement or they didn't have much and they could really dedicate to something. So I think, you know, having worked at somewhat comfortable jobs for a while now, sometimes I wonder and I sort of worry, um, getting used to getting that steady paycheck and, you know, this cushy life. Uh, and for some people, it's different. It's like family reasons, right? Having a family, having kids and things like that. Those things, do you think uh, really hamper your ability to really take on the risk of being an early employee, being a founder? Oh, 100%. Our Wi-Fi password is stay hungry. We all have our own rooms now, and that is like a groundbreaking step for us. <laughs> We, we all lived in a one-bedroom apartment for about a year and a half. Um, it was called work camp because I, I joke that it was like sleepaway camp, but instead of waking Wait, up to like do fun Wait, like four people in one bedroom? Yeah. There was a living room, okay. so there was like it, Dan, the ultimate negotiator, negotiated the bedroom that was the size of his mattress, so he kind of had a door. And then Tony had a day bed, I had an air mattress, and Ken slept on the floor. Um so you live together, work together all day, all night. Yep. And you didn't end up killing each other. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a that's a special, it's kind of a crazy development of getting to know each other all through uh, very different stages. We were working out of the investor's office before we pivoted. Company is failing, looking your investors in the eyes every day while the company is not making progress is a very interesting experience. Um, they eventually needed to build some more conference rooms, so they kicked us out. I think they just wanted us out. Um, we were quite loud. Cool. Cool. This will be fun. 